Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first session of Sanctuary 2, part two of the 2020 Guernsey Funds Forum. My name is Rupert Pleasant, and I'm the Chief Executive of Guernsey Finance. Obviously, it is a shame that we can't hold our flagship event in London as usual, but we are nonetheless excited to be running this event across three days this week. And we have attendees join us online from as far away as South America and the Middle East, who would obviously not ordinarily be able to do so. Our webinars end with a keynote speech on Wednesday from renowned journalist and broadcaster Andrew Neal, who will be speaking to us fresh from the result of the US election. And it will be fascinating to hear his take on its implications, particularly for the UK, which is a key market for Guernsey. If you haven't registered yet, I'd urge you to do so now. It's going to be a great session. We've got plenty more to cover before we get to the Trump versus Biden debate, starting with today's session, Capitalism with a Purpose. Rhetoric or reality? 2020 will be remembered for the COVID-19 pandemic, demand for social economic reform, and raise global tensions leading to geopolitical unrest. Against this backdrop, our panel of leading market practitioners will discuss whether 2020 will change capitalism as we know it, or if it's more of a noise and a distraction in a kind of Western context. We will also discuss the implications for the global fund community and the investment landscape, including issues like managing investor activism and how managers can demonstrate resilience. I'm delighted to introduce Miles Selick, our moderator today. Miles knows Guernsey well. He has twice been the keynote speaker at our on-island events in the past, and we're delighted to have him back again. Miles began his career in broadcasting, making and presenting radio and television programmes for the BBC and others. He moved on to work in the UK Parliament, where he focused on foreign affairs and defence issues. He subsequently worked in a number, of leading, uh, a, a number of leading reputation management and public policy consultancies. In 2007, he joined HSBC's policy function to lead political engagement and was part of the team that led the bank's response to the global banking crisis. He joined the City UK in 2016, an organisation which does for the financial services industry in the UK what Guernsey Finance does for our local financial services industry. So just before we begin, I'll briefly address some features of our webinar platform. We will have live Q&A today. You can submit your questions during the webinar using the widget on screen and we'll get round to answering as many as we can. Some of our industry literature and our sponsors' resources are available to download from the widgets on screen, which are being highlighted now. Can I also bring your particular attention to Mark O'Hare's presentation, in which he'll refer to some charts and graphs which you can access through the first document in the, in the resource widget. So can I encourage you to download this document at your earliest convenience? We'll also have a couple of polls running during the session, so please do engage, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. And if you want to react to us on social media, we'll be at We Are Guernsey on Twitter with the event hashtag GYFF20. I'll return later to round off this afternoon's session, but for now, I'll leave you in the very capable hands of Miles. Over to you, Miles. Rupert, thank you very much indeed for that uh, introduction. Uh, it's great to be here with Guernsey uh, again, uh, albeit in virtual form uh, as opposed to physically. Uh, and what a subject uh, for us to discuss, uh, one that is particularly pertinent 
uh, in light of the events that we're going to be going through over the next 48 hours, but also uh, the events of recent months. Uh, historically, pandemics have tended to act as great accelerators, mighty accelerators of pre-existing political, economic, social, technological and environmental trends. And one of the major trends that our industry has been dealing with and our society uh, has been dealing with is the question of the purpose and future uh, of capitalism. Um, and I can't think of a better time uh, to be uh, examining this question now uh, than now uh, in uh, the face uh, of the issues that the industry uh, and our wider society uh, has been dealing with in recent months. Um, and I'd like to start with uh, one of the polls that Rupert spoke about. Um, so if you could look at the poll, the question that we're going to start with uh, is the question uh, that we are tackling. Um, is capitalism with a purpose rhetoric or is it reality? So please do uh, use the widget uh, on your screen uh, and we will look at how uh, the debate uh, over the next uh, hour or so uh, may shift people's, uh, people's views. So please do feel free to vote um, as we speak. Um, as a uh, precursor to the discussion that we're going to be having, um, as I said, the backdrop is shifting. Uh, the trends that we've seen over time have been accelerating. Uh, and so there are real questions about social uh, purpose and social expectation uh, on capitalism uh, and the role uh, of capitalism. Uh, and not just in the West, uh, but in developing economies uh, as well. Uh, and we've seen this in the debate around ESG and SRI issues. Um, that is a debate that's been front of mind, uh, as we know, in the UK uh, and in Europe uh, and indeed in Guernsey uh, in recent years, uh, but is now something that we're seeing much further afield. So the progress that we've seen in places such as China, uh, in particular on the development of green bonds. Uh, and interestingly, uh, in the conversations that uh, we've been having at City UK with our counterparts in the United States uh, through the work of organizations uh, which we lead, such as the British American Financial Alliance, what's fascinating is the extent to which Whoever becomes president uh, in the United States, whoever wins the election, uh, whichever party is in power in Congress, what we're certainly seeing from industry in the US and what we're certainly seeing from many customers uh, in the US is a heightened expectation uh, on economic uh, sustainability uh, and governance issues as well as on socially responsible investment. And I think that raises some really fascinating opportunities and some really fascinating challenges uh, for Guernsey and its role in this context as a major global finance centre with the expectations uh, that we're going to see uh, not just now, but in the months uh, and the years ahead, uh, presenting some real potential commercial uh, opportunities and some real expectations uh, in terms of what customers want to see. So there is a real opportunity here as well, more broadly, for private equity uh, to show the positive social impact uh, that it can have. Um, and I can't think of two better people to help explore that issue uh, this afternoon uh, than the two that we have with us. Uh, we'll be hearing from a moment from Gurpreet Manku, the uh, Deputy Director General and uh, the Director of Policy at the British Venture Capital uh, Association. Uh, GERP is responsible for the BVCA's response to a wide range uh, of policy issues that uh, the industry deals with, such as tax, legal, reporting, uh, and regulatory issues, uh, including, uh, and I'm sure she's been delighted to have to deal with this, including Brexit. 
Um, she's a board member for the Cost Transparency Initiative, uh, worked on the Weights Corporate Governance Principles, uh, and is uh, the body responsible for the monitoring the industry's compliance with the Walker Guidelines. Uh, and she leads the BV BVCA's uh, efforts uh, on uh, diversity and inclusion. Before joining the BVCA, uh, she was with Deloitte. Uh, we're also, after Gertz, going to be hearing from Mark O'Hare, the CEO of Prekin, uh, which is the Alternative Assets Information Service, uh, a, an independent business with 11 global offices providing extensive research uh, and data on the entire global alternative assets uh, industry. Uh, Mark started out with Boston Consulting, uh, and uh, following that was one of the founders. Uh, he founded Goodall Alexander O'Hare & Co., uh, an independent strategy consulting firm, uh, and in 1993, he founded CityWatch, uh, the UK's leading shareholder information service, which was acquired by Reuters uh, in 1998. Um, so we'll turn first to GURPS in a moment, um, after which we'll hear from Mark, um, and then we'll have a discussion uh, between the panel, uh, after which we will open it up to questions from the audience. Please do feel free to use the Q&A box uh, on your screen to throw those questions uh, at us. Um, before I turn to GURPS, uh, I can see that there is a, uh, a healthy majority, 60.2% uh, for uh, capitalism uh, being a, with purpose being a reality, uh, but a fairly large skeptical group of nearly 40% of you who think that it's just rhetoric. Well, hopefully uh, we may be able to shed some further light on that uh, in, the, uh, in the coming hour or so. And with that, Gerps, over to you. Thank you, Mars. Uh, so to start with, I thought I'd give you some um, a, a quick update on the BBCA itself. So the BBCA represents about 300 private equity and venture capital firms that have UK operations, and it includes everything from the smallest startup venture firm investing in seed or Series A capital, all the way through to the UK mid-market, which represents a large, large constituency of our membership, um, all the way up to the large global buyout houses that have a base here in the UK and across Europe. Now, our members have invested around four, sorry, £43 billion into UK businesses in the five-year period uh, running up to 2019. That includes around 3,000 UK businesses, and 60% of that £40 billion investment was outside of London and included £11 billion going into the Midlands and the north of England. Uh, each year, when I look at the data, the majority of investments our members make are into SMEs. And at the moment, we estimate there to be about 900,000, sorry, 970,000 uh, employees in our members' uh, portfolio companies. Now, that's just data we're collecting. So actually, the numbers are going to be much larger than that in practice. So, you know, my, my view, and perhaps I'm a bit biased, but my view is that our industry does represent long-term investors. A number of us have either previously or currently worked with funds, and we all know that they're long-term in nature. A typical uh, term for a fund will be 10 years, but in practice, that often stretches out to 12 years, 13 years, possibly up to 16 years or longer when you're looking at venture capital firms. Now, we've got that capacity to invest for, long, uh, for the long-term horizon, 
And we know that our members hold companies for around three to seven years. So what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that we can invest throughout an economic cycle and we can invest and, and support our businesses through the downturn. And that's something that I've seen throughout the COVID crisis. We know that our members have continued to invest, including in new deals, and that's something that Mark will, will touch on with his data. But the point that I really want to draw out is that the cumulative experience our members have when it comes to managing companies, like, you know, that active ownership model that we have, and the good credentials when it comes to environmental, social, and governance matters, means that our members were well-based, and not just our members, but private equity and venture capital firms in general, were well-placed to support businesses throughout the crisis and the continuing crisis that we're all dealing with here. This meant that they were able to support businesses as they dealt with cash and liquidity concerns, given the drop-off on demand, but also were able to, to bring support to the, the businesses when they were looking at the diff different government funding schemes out there and the different government uh, support schemes for jobs as well. But I think one point that has really come, come through, and Miles uh, touched on it earlier, is that our members would have supported businesses as they adapted to this new digital environment that we're working in. We've seen a significant amount of digital transformation and the businesses that private equity and venture capital firms have been investing in have been leading the charge there. And in many cases, accelerating work that was already planned. So yeah, when it comes back to the question of rhetorical reality, I'm clearly in the reality space. Um, and that's not surprising because for the last few years, um, if not longer, I've been working with the industry as it looks at how it uh, how transparent it is when it comes to its ownership of very large UK businesses. And this falls under the work that we do on Sir David Walker's guidelines for transparency and disclosure in private equity. Now, over 50, in some years, 60 to 70 portfolio companies have been disclosing more information about their activities. And this stretches beyond financial metrics. This talks about areas such as strategy, business model, how businesses have been supporting their employees. We've updated the guidelines to, to cover things such as diversity as well. And then looking really hard at the trends and factors affecting the business and further disclosing all of this to, to wider stakeholders, not just their, their owners. That's an area that we've been collecting data on for the past 12 to 13 years as well. And that data shows that when it comes to the overall return generated when these assets are finally sold, uh, it's not just down to market movements, certainly not down to just leverage. It's, it's about the real improvement in those businesses that we, we've supported. And again, that's, um, that, that's, that's all supported by uh, growth. Uh, you need to have generated sustainable growth in these businesses to generate those kind of returns for your investors. And the numbers do back that up. The other point is that regulation is catching up. So whether it's ESG or sustainability regulation, or more uh, detailed requirements when it comes to corporate governance in the UK and the reporting around it, it is catching up. And I think with this industry is well placed to, to, to meet those requirements. Uh, so that's that's my pitch here. Um, I'm hopeful that I've changed um, changed the minds of some of those that are critical, slightly critical. Um, but back to you, Miles.
Gertz, thanks very much. I think we, we will use a poll later to see how effective this panel has been at either uh, solidifying people's pre-existing prejudices on this question or perhaps uh, shifting them. But I think that's a, a great setting out of where we are. Um, and I'd like to hand over to Mark to take us uh, the next step on the discussion. Mark, over to you. Thank you very much, Miles, and, and good afternoon to everybody. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you today, and thank you all for taking time from your schedules to, to join us. I was really interested, uh, and I jotted down Rupert's question at the beginning, uh, will the current environment change capitalism as we know it? And Miles, you, you sort of responded to that and said that one of the things that we're seeing is existing trends get amplified and accelerated by crises like this. And I think as we look around ourselves, we all know that retail and shopping have changed and, and we'll, won't go back to where they were before. Ditto travel won't be the same and ditto how we collaborate and work together won't change. And, and, and my sort of take on this is that actually capitalism itself is also also changing and along with these other things changing for the better some things are changing some things are staying the same i'd like to cover three themes that 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 i draw from prequence data and all of this is available on on as as rupert said on the on on the platform you can download the charts um but firstly i'd like to think about the impact of covid-19 on on private equity and private capital and you know is is this you know is the model broken and and bluntly this is the one where it's actually chaps it's it's it, the model is still intact people are sticking with the program and i'll share some data with you that i think supports that so private capital very much you know still where it was interestingly today the global figure for assets under management in alternative assets is about 11 trillion dollars um, Prequence estimate or forecast, sorry, is that that will grow to 15 or more by 2025. And if you do the maths, that's $2,000 per man, woman, and child on the planet. It, it's almost the term alternative is no longer appropriate. The second theme I'd like to touch on is, is private equity's role in, in exiting from COVID-19. Uh, you know, what what role can it play there? And the final role is is about responsible investing and ESG. And I'd like to just share some information with you that I think demonstrates the, you know, kind of the fact that ESG is very real. But I think we're then going to throw that over to all of you to uh, to see what whether you agree with that thesis. So on to the first one, you know, private equity and private capital. I mean, if I share some data with you and look globally at private equity and venture capital fundraising, um, you know, 2017, 18, 19, that was running at $700 billion a year, reached 720 in 2019. This year, as at the end of, uh, end of October, the end of last week, it was about 440 billion. So two-thirds of the way towards last year's total. Usually the last quarter is a very busy one. Um, I don't think this year will be any 
any exception. I personally doubt it will quite reach 700 billion, but I'd be enormously surprised if it's below 600, even 630, 650 billion. So a slightly tougher year, but still the money is flowing in. Looking at other aspects of activity, deals. Um, you know, last year we saw about 6,000 private equity-backed deals globally. Thus far, we're at 4,200 deals. Again, it's you know, it's not going to be a quiet year for deals. It's going to be quite busy, and and venture capital deals, um, frankly, even busier. Uh, 15, 16,000 deals last year. We're up at. 12,000 this year, but in terms of money, there was about 250 billion invested in venture in 2019. We're already up to 240. So this year is going to be, in fact, a very strong year for venture capital. You've got to ask why that's the case. You know, why why are funds being raised? Why are deals being done? One of the the key things that we look at at Prequent is you know, follow the money, look, look at the returns. And if you look over the long term, and, and one of the charts here is showing data from uh, the millennium through to today, private equity has, very broadly speaking, outperformed public markets by about 4% a year, 400 basis points. And if you look back at the global financial crisis, uh, and, and those of you who've been in this industry for a while will remember the obituaries that were being written for private equity. Uh, yes, values came down in the crisis, no worse than values in public markets, but since then have recovered more strongly. And again, at the beginning of this year, our latest data is March, which, as you recall, was the, the darkest moment of, uh, of the pandemic thus far. Um, yes, values had come, up, come off, but again, no more so than public markets. So private equity's got a really strong record of delivering returns. And then what do investors intend to do? The, 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 the asset owners, the pension funds, the endowments, and so on. Well, we ask them this question on a very regular basis at Prequin, most recently in June of this year. And the story, the, the response we're getting is the following. When we ask people about what are you going to do this year versus last year, you know, will there be a short-term impact? Broadly speaking, for two-thirds of investors, there's no change. For about 14 15%, there's going to be some change of a negative nature. And for about 11%, there'll, there'll be a slight increase. So a slight, a slight move to doing less. Again, that ties in with the fundraising figures. When we ask them, what, what are you going to do in the longer term, unequivocally, it's I'm going to keep things the same or I'm going to invest more as a result of, 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 of the COVID crisis. And that makes perfect sense. I think Gurpreet, you know, described in her, in her section, you know, how private equity-backed companies have been at the forefront of adapting, making the digital transformation. And investors get that. So they get the the good, solid, long-term track record, and they know that private equity-backed businesses are going to be uh, adapting very quickly. So, in terms of you know the the long-term picture, you know, is the model broken or is growth going to continue? It's an absolute yes. 
you know, the model is intact, people are sticking with the program and, and looking for opportunities. Talking briefly about the role of private equity in the, in the exit, if we look at private equity itself globally, there's about one and a half trillion dollars of dry capital, uh, dry powder, sorry, that's funds that investors have committed to funds, they haven't yet been invested, and the GPs are out looking for deals. In Europe, that figure is about 280 billion. Um, so vast, vast pool of capital, ready to invest, looking for opportunities, uh, and if history is any guide to the future, private equity fund managers will find those opportunities and, and back that up with capital. So private equity has a huge role to play in getting the UK, the European and the global economy out of, out of the, the doldrums of, of COVID. And moving on briefly to, to ESG, um, we've been working on this for quite a while at Prequin, and later this month, uh, later in November, we're launching the first release of a a new service and product for our for our customers, being both investors and fund managers and advisors. The good news for you all is that there'll be no new frameworks. Uh, the last thing that um, ESG needs is another new framework. So we're working with the existing frameworks, with SASB, with ILPA, TCFD, PRI, and others using those frameworks. But what we're doing is we're making the information, going back to another theme of, of, of Gurpreet's, much more transparent. So we have two things on the platform. The first is we have a transparency score, where we take everything public that GPs have disclosed about their approach to ESG, what measures they look at, what what you know, what, what what processes they have in place. And we're simply displaying what level of transparency they have and what measures they have in place. So if somebody scores ninety two percent and somebody scores forty eight percent that doesn't of necessity mean the guy scoring 48% is bad. It just means, guys, we're taking what you've told us, and, and this is what is available to the investor. So that's a tool investors can use to look at different GPs and understand what they are publicly disclosing about their, about their ESG policies. The second thing we're doing is, is, is looking at the actual portfolio, and we're looking at and the, the, the assets in the portfolio, the companies, and we're scoring them using some of these existing guidelines showing, you know, so for example, a coal plant in Namibia is likely to have a very different ESG risk profile to a, a video games uh, company in, in Farringdon. Uh, we all know. And that's not saying one is bad, one is good. It's just measuring the risk in that portfolio. Again, a useful measure. So that's uh, where we are in terms of ESG. We've, we're having a tremendous response to that. We've got customers signed up for that even before the product is ready. But I think I'd like to uh, hand, hand back to you, Miles, and maybe we'll have the first um, a, a poll to see if, if people believe that ESG is real and will impact flows of capital. Thank you very much.
Well, thanks very much for that terrific uh, run through. Uh, and as Mark has said, uh, we've got our next poll, which is um, having heard the speakers, having been aware of the discussions uh, yourselves within uh, the audience uh, in the work that you've done uh, over recent months and years. Do you believe that ESG considerations uh, will have a material impact on flows of capital in private equity? over the next three years, and you've got five options to choose from there, depending on your uh, level of skepticism or optimism uh, in this space. So my thanks to Gurpreet and Mark. Uh, you've uh, both given us a terrific uh, starting point for this discussion, and I'd just like to explore if I may, some of the some of the points that you've both uh, you've both identified, and you've set out very compellingly where the private sector is, uh, where the private sector is heading, um, and uh, it would be useful to explore the other side of that coin, um, which is the governmental side. And before I, I go back to that in a bit more detail, I can see we've already had a, a rapid response to our poll. Um, and I would say that there is a, a degree of, of, of optimism uh, about the degree to which ESG considerations will have an impact uh, on private equity over the next three years, with well over half uh, of people thinking it will either be significant or, uh, or very significant. Nobody uh, believing that it will have uh, no impact at all, and only uh, fewer than 3% feeling that it will be minimal. But Putting the uh, the private uh, sector side just to one uh, private sector element just to one side for a moment. When you both think about the the way the state has responded to this, how do you see the the, the governmental response, the response of the authorities, either treasuries, finance ministries, central banks? I mean, we've had vast amounts of government stimulus uh, that have gone in. Um, we've seen central banks seemingly, uh, in, in many cases, uh, adopt MMT, which many people will know as either modern monetary theory, uh, or for those who are uh, a little more uh, cynical about MMT, uh, also known by some as the magic money tree theory, uh, the idea that, that central banks can simply print their way through these sorts of uh, uh, crises, and indeed generally. So, so uh, Gurpreet, how do you feel the state has done? How do you feel government has done? So in, in terms of the, um, the support schemes we've seen over the COVID crisis, it's not just the government's reaction that, that matters. I think when you look at some of the broader um, broader reaction uh, coming through, whether it's through the press or MPs or, or other uh, interest groups, um, this, the, 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 there's a feeling that there needs to be some conditionality uh, alongside this support. So if, if the support is being granted at the moment, companies do need um, a response, um, and, and because it's not, it's not down to any sort of business specifics or, or, or model that the, the company's adopted in terms of its capital structure that's leading to these issues. It's a it's a shutdown in global in global demand in some cases. Um, there's a feeling that. If you are taking this money on, if you're taking this additional funding on, that you do need to to actually support the businesses and your broader community going forward. So need to to think about the companies need to be thinking about whether they're, they're, they minimise some of the dividends or look again at the dividend policy, looking at executive pay as well. That's that's been a topical area. I just also wanted to point out that some 
portfolio companies have, have opted not to take on additional government support. They've been funding their, their portfolio companies through existing means or additional LP capital as well. So I think there is a bit of conditionality you need to, you need to be conscious of when you're taking on that support. Great, thanks, Gert. Mark? Good. Um, absolutely. Well, well, I think, um, to, you know, the, the acronym MMT, Magic Money Tree, is, is inappropriate. I think it's MMF, Magic Money Forest, that we, that we have now. <laughs> that ser Seriously, look, the, I, I think the positive side of um, government intervention, and if I can broaden that out to include central banks, as, as, as well has actually been very positive because I think the you know in the global financial crisis I think we we'd all probably concur that um, central banks and governments reacted in a new way and 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 did provide the you know support and stimulus that there hadn't been in in such a concerted way previously and 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 I think we should all be grateful for that and I, I think the same is is happening now um, so I think the scale and rapidity of the response has been positive um, I think one of the dangers from this and 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 this is nothing new from me but from uh, Andy Haldane the chief economist of the Bank of England is, is that you know one of the one of the dangers of massive intervention is going back to the the points that you miles and and rupert made at the beginning about already established trends being massively accelerated by the you know by the crisis and and we're seeing trends in shopping and retail we're seeing trends in travel we're seeing trends in real estate and and you know commercial offices and so on there is therefore by by supporting companies there's a real danger that uh, that support is uncoupled from the market and a lot of the money goes to support businesses that frankly are you know not sustainable in the long run anyway and 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 whilst that you know has its benefits and 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 defers the pain um, it also defers the ability of the economy to adapt um, you know, and and I think you know, you, you know, I, th I think that's a real a real issue. I, I think we do need to be, you know, as as a society and an economy, be be dynamic and adapt to changing needs, not to save the high street, be, you know, be, because that's something we should we should do, or, or save the pub industry, or, or, or whatever. So it's, it's, it's sort of recognizing, I mean, from what you're saying, Mark, it's, it's sort of recognizing that capitalism at its heart can be responsible and has to be responsible. And I, I would personally argue successful capitalism has always been responsible. That's why long-term companies are long-term. They tend to be, they tend to take a wider view. But, but you were also talking about the need to unleash creative destruction, uh, that you have to free up assets. You can't have a, a second wave of zombie companies companies emerging. I mean, uh, that, that sort of brings with it real classic sort of challenges politically, socially, economically, in all sorts of ways. Absolutely. Look, look, and, 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 and I'd be the first to recognize that's a, you know, privileged right, right wing, you know, kind of position, position to take. But, but I, I think it's necessary. Um, and, you know, certainly, 
in our business, you know, bringing it right back to home. Um, you know, we, on the one hand, don't hesitate to um, restructure things and, and indeed remove individuals where it's not working. But we're very generous and, and, and you know, fair when, when, when we have to do that. And I think that's what, what capitalism needs to do. Can I, can I just? I'd be interested in both your views on um, when you look at the major. You know, we've touched on the major social changes, the major public policy challenges, the expectations society has. You know, there's a greater expectation on sustainability issues, a greater expectation on diversity and inclusion issues. Uh, potentially, we seem to be seeing a, a, a very different attitude, not just in the boardroom, not just in society, but amongst our employees in in large companies, in terms of a shift towards a desire for longer term, more sustainable, more uh, more green solutions. You've also got the major demographic changes that we're seeing, particularly in the West, but not only in the West. China's an example of an aging population. You've got falling worker uh, uh, dependency ratios, aging populations that will require support, sort of support that, for instance, the, the life insurance industry has done terrifically well for decades, if not centuries. To what extent do you see the industry here as both being part of the solution, but also this being a, an, an absolutely terrific opportunity for the industry to, to again emphasize that it is socially responsible, it does have a social and economic utility. If you look at it historically, that's always been the case. There's a terrific book that I would recommend to, to anybody by uh, a Yale University professor called uh, William Gertzman called Money Changes Everything, which runs through exactly this sort of thing about how finance made trade possible, it made insurance possible. Is this another one of those moments where, where our industry can really show what it does for society? Gertrude, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, um, when we think about ESG, when I look back to to where the industry was probably eight, eight, ten years ago, it was looking at that subject as possibly a risk mitigation subject. So, in terms of uh, due diligence and, and before you make an investment, you know, how how does ESG affect our um, our risk in in this particular investment? But it's it's much more integrated now. It's much more part of the, the overall process, not just whether or not we should make an investment. And, and actually, it's key in many cases to the, the value created for both the, the in, in the business sense and, and for the shareholders and the asset owners, but just value created for other stakeholders relevant to that business as well. And you, you can see that through through lots of different um, aspects of the work that we do. You, you have funds out there that are specifically the sustainability focused and market those credentials you've had this huge growth in impact investing um, both in the mainstream um, asset management markets and, and in alternatives um, and the, the point on the on the last the last item is that impact investment is no longer looked at as some sort of philanthropy philanthropic exercise or, um, or you know charitable giving or anything like that it's it's actually looked at um, as an investment opportunity where returns are generated as well as doing environmental and social good so I think you know, we definitely can be part of, of the solution going forward but I actually think that a lot of this activity is already happening um, when firms think about the the, the environment and the, the markets in which their businesses operate in, in some cases, I suspect the regulation is probably catching catching up 
and in others it's it's nudging people in the right direction thanks Mark? I, I i absolutely agree with you gurpreet and 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 you know i think at heart you know esg is really about sustainability in in the broadest sense you know um yes we all think of environmental sustainability but governance sustainability you know it can can the business be you know knocked off course by you know one individual or a small group or other the processes and structures in 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 place to you know to keep it keep it you know performing well and and ultimately you know a, a, a desire for us for esg should be driven by blatant self-interest rather than complying with regulations you know because you know if you, if if you think about it having a, a diverse and inclusive and fair you know kind of work work environment well what does that get you you know it gets you access to a larger pool of talented people and people with diverse views and that can't be anything other than good 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 for a business so on all those dimensions it makes sense and finally i think the real lever that's going to you know uh, that, that, that that's the carrot the stick is that um is less regulation but more that the biggest investing institutions are really now very serious about ESG and 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 want to be you know investing their dollars in 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 the right sorts of companies so if if you as an individual business or as a you know private equity firm you know want to attract a good valuation and attract the flow of capital well you know get with get with the program and and, and i think they all get that I, I think that's a, a terrific um, uh, note on which to move into our next uh, poll and also uh, to move to the questions from the audience, which are coming in absolutely uh, thick and fast. Uh, so thank you very much for those. Please do keep those. Uh, please, please do keep those coming. Um, one of the uh, questions that we've come up from the audience, I think, rather complements the poll rather well. So I'll come to that in a second. But if you can see the poll on your screen, it's what is, uh, in your view, the most important aspect of ESG? Is it environment? Is it sustainability? Or is it governance? So please do uh, do vote on that. And I think that that um, fits quite neatly with a question that's come in um, on the, the ESG framework. So uh, Mark, you talked about a number of the ESG frameworks that are out there, uh, the responsibility, uh, the uh, principles for responsible investment, uh, TCFD, and so on. Um, you talked also about the need that we don't need any more of these. There are plenty of them to go around. But if you had to pick a, a, a particular one or perhaps a cluster, which would be the most important? What are the most important things in, in both your opinions that are driving that? And as a supplementary question, as a, as a supplementary to that point, Guernsey, Frontier Economics did a, uh, a report relatively recently. It showed there's been a massive increase in global capital flows into and from Guernsey over the last five years. How do you see the role of Guernsey as potentially uh, uh, helping drive the take-up of some of these uh, frameworks? Uh, you know, what is the role of, of a center such as this uh, in helping promote that? Um, Mark, do you want to kick off? Ab ab absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Miles. May, may I just say on, on the, uh, the, 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 the poll here, unless I'm wrong, I think it should be 
environmental, social and governance rather than sustainability, because I think sustainability covers them all. So, so I, I, I'd, I'd ask people to think of social as, as they, they, they do that. That's um, a very good point. Good, good spot. You get the Mars bar for the deliberate type <laughs> action. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, um, you, you know, dodge the question on which of the frameworks is most important because I genuinely think think they all are, and I think that that you know that they're looking at things in different ways, and that's no bad thing. You know, uh, we always see that in the early stages of any movement. You know, different standards and measures, and and yes, we'll settle on 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 the best ones over a period of time, but just the. Um, you know, kind of what 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 can Guernsey and and other jurisdictions do? That that's enormously Im important because you know one of the um, you know people people buy cars and houses for all different reasons, and people invest in funds for all all different reasons. And and we like to think that we are ruthlessly logical and analytical in, in our decision making. The answer is we're not. You know, there is uh, emotion and comfort there. And, and a big comfort comes from, you know, the the concept and, and, and demonstration of, of standards and, uh, you know, that are applied. And I think, you know, someone like Guernsey can and does have an enormous role to play there in providing through those standards a level of comfort uh, for you know for, for um you know for for, for for investors so i think i think it's you know the 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 choice of you know for a fund manager the choice of jurisdiction you know for the fund is not purely you know again a mathematical one it's it's you know kind of what does that say to the investors who i'm hoping to attract into the fund Thanks very much. And I think we may be able to see the results. Uh, here we go. Social. So the, the uh, recategorized S, uh, very definitely with a majority there. And uh, then pretty neck and neck between environment and governance, which is fascinating. Um, but uh, Gurpri, over to you. Yeah, um, just, just reflecting on that, um, on that poll, on, on the social piece, I think the, the impact of COVID as a, as a crisis, not, we've been talking about it in terms of its impact on, on business, I guess, and, and the economy, but there's a whole people side to this as well. And um, I suspect there's lots of individuals working within business and in asset managers and in banks, probably rethinking what they want to do in the future as well. And I think that that social piece, you know, how we look after each other, how we support our community, healthcare, I think that will really start to, you know, to, 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 to come through and, and is an area that, that um, individuals will need to pay attention to as well as businesses. Um, but thinking about, about frameworks, when I look at what we've been doing in the UK, um, as an asset management association, looking at private and venture capital specifically, we've been really interested in the EU sustainable disclosure, sorry, sustainable finance disclosure regulation, because though even though we're not talking about EU structures as in, um, and, and uh, consistent regulation, that there will be an impact on non-EU firms. Uh, so there's been a huge amount of work on that o over the summer, given the consultations on the technical standards. But one thing that I know that the government here is very much interested in is TCFD. So the in terms of how it's 
how, how the government's seeking to, to apply at the moment. The FCA has had an open consultation um, which looks at applying it on a comply or explain basis to uh, listed businesses with a premium listing, and that includes asset managers, but it is interested in how it applies to the broader population of regulated firms in the UK. So there's lots of organisations that um, are in this audience right now who will have a, a UK presence in the UK regulated entity. So how that applies to the UK in, in the future is, is of interest. And the the green finance and, uh, strategy in the UK as well also has a target of uh, making it applicable to, to listed issuers by all listed issuers by 2022, I believe. So again, I think that's one area to, to monitor. In, in terms of the work that Guernsey could be doing, I think I'd probably want to reflect on the work that's already been done. So with the, 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 on, the on the green finance side, uh, I think you, you guys have come out and spoken openly about it for some time and I think that's particularly interested and, and you know anything that you can do to help communicate the value of this area communicate what standards there are out there how they can be applied by managers particularly those firms that are looking to set up non-EU non-UK funds where there is um, there's probably a little bit more detailed regulation to come I think I think Guernsey's got a, a good opportunity there Thank you. Uh, the, the questions are coming in thick and fast, as I said, and I, I, there isn't huge backlog, so I'm not going to be able to get, uh, get to all of them. So apologies to those who I will not be able to get to, but I'm going to just, just um, group a few of them together. So uh, there's a very good uh, point that's been raised by Stephanie Jarrett, uh, who says that if you have good governance, environmental protection and sustainability will follow, which I think is an, a, an excellent point. Uh, and if our panelists could just think of that as we as we move into the next question. Um, two questions coming together. One, one uh, somebody quotes, this is, this is turned into a very erudite discussion, far more so than I'm used to anyway. Uh, somebody quotes Milton Friedman saying, surely the responsibility of businesses is just to deliver profits uh, and returns for their, for their shareholders. And I think that's a, a, a fair challenge. And I'd be interested in our uh, the views from our panelists on that. But also uh, a question from Dominic Wheatley, who many of the people on this call will be <coughs> excuse me, very familiar with which is that if you think about the PE industry, it is collective action. Uh, in, it is a, a collective uh, a response in action. Uh, and it is something, an industry that works on behalf of, of many smaller investors. It has a track record of supporting SMEs. You know, is, is this an area where uh, a PE in particular uh, can stress uh, and look to, to, to be harnessed uh, as a way of delivering some of these ESG outcomes that we're talking about? Gerbrich, perhaps you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, I mean, on the on the point around shareholder primacy, this is um, this is an area that is being tested in the UK. I've seen it tested in subtle ways um, when we're looking at things such as corporate governance principles that apply to large private companies, and um, you know, more broadly, any large business or corporate in the in the UK needs to state how it's how directors have complied with their Section One Seven two duties which talk about um you know shareholder value but also consideration of other factors and other stakeholders uh, including employees suppliers and customers so this notion that it's it's just about profits uh, it is being tested whereas, whereas legally yes you know you do need to do things in the interests of, of your shareholders yeah, i think most 
most private and venture capital firms will recognize that that's not enough. You do need to think about the impact of your actions and businesses' actions on the broader stakeholder community because that overall does affect value. Um, and that, that, that expectation is there. Great, thank but you. On, Mark, on the point around oh, sorry, Gurpreet, I didn't mean to cut Sorry, I was just thinking right? that I, yeah. didn't, I didn't answer your last question about the, um, you know, the role of the, of the industry. Yes, we, we do need to um, talk more loudly about the impact we do have on the economy here. Um, I mentioned the, the employment numbers. I know that, the, that that's something that the government recognises, um, but it's that investment in SMEs. It's investment into businesses that are growing, that are transforming, that are, are becoming more sophisticated. Sophisticated. It's it's that element that does need to to shine through. We can come in and help businesses strengthen their governance frameworks, help them understand this plethora of reporting standards out there, and how they can transform their businesses to be more sustainable in the future. I think we we probably do need to to promote that much much more than we do already. Thank you, Gerbrick, and apologies again for cutting across you. Uh, Mark, if you could uh, draw us uh, to a close briefly, that would be terrific. Thank you. Yeah, very, very briefly. So should business only be interested in, in profit? Well, um, number one, it's profit related to risk. So, you know, I might get the highest profits in a an open cast coal mine or in a Bolivian drug cartel, but but or, or a sweatshop in in Bangladesh, but th but they all entail levels of risk that I as an investor might or might not be be happy with. So I think that's the first thing. But the you know the second thing, and I think it goes back to you know we're not all ruthlessly analytical or numbers driven people. Um, you know. Emotion and other factors do come in. So, you know, I I I, th I believe that, you know, yes, profit is the primary responsibility of, um, you know, of capitalism and therefore of of, of companies, and it should be according to Adam Smith to make the system work. However, it's not the only one, and and if if you ask you know, investors in a public company or in a large private equity fund, you know, are you interested in profit above all or do you care about, you know, the social footprint, you know, an environmental footprint of this business? You know, I'm sure the answer you get is yes, I have a wider, a wider range of, um, you know, kind of, of priorities and, and objectives. So, you know, pragmatically, Profit is not the only thing, you know, that there are these other other factors. Mark, thank you very much for that, Gurpreet. Thank you. I will draw us um, shortly to a close. We have a last poll question to review how we've uh, we've gone, um, which is: Will responsible capitalism become a mainstream discussion uh, in the future? Uh, please do vote now. Yes, no, or maybe. Um, I think all that remains for me to do is to say thank you very much to Gurpreet and Mark. That's been a terrific uh, discussion. I feel we skated uh, across the ice uh, on on something that is both a very broad, very wide, and also very deep uh, discussion. Um, uh, many thanks to those who contributed questions uh, over the last hour. Apologies to those that we didn't get to. Um, I think what that shows is whether this is a mainstream discussion or not, and we will find out uh, in a moment if, it, if uh, people believe it will be. It's certainly one that captures the imagination. I think it is at the heart of the industry's long-term success, personally, and I think it is at the heart of the industry's long-term relevance to society, and I think we've 
show that. And there we are, um, nearly 90% uh, of the audience believing uh, that this will become a mainstream discussion in the future. Um, I think that's been a terrific discussion. Thanks again to the panelists. Uh, thank you to Guernsey Finance for giving us the opportunity to look at this. Uh, and with that, Rupert, over to you. Can anybody hear me? That's great, Rupert. We can hear you. I do apologise about that. The joys of technology. <laughs> uh, Miles, thank you very much indeed. And also to Gapri and Mark uh, on a very thought-provoking discussion. Uh, I thought it was particularly interesting to hear the panel's thoughts on how the majority of investors are sticking with the programme despite COVID-19. The private equity is alive and kicking, but is adapting to a digital world, uh, looking for opportunities that will help us, uh, you know, pull us out of this crisis. Uh, the trends, especially in retail and sustainability, are being massively accelerated by our current circumstances. I also thought that Mark's quote that capitalism is changing for the better was very poignant and somewhat heartening in, in such turbulent times. Uh, I also rather like the thought of living in a magic money forest. That sounds very nice. Um, Guernsey is the infrastructure to tackle issues around sustainability and proven resilience, as evidenced through the island's handling of the COVID crisis. We're a key global fund specialist and leaders in private equity and alternatives with a simple, flexible funds regime. Before we sign off, uh, in addition to our panelists, I'd also like to thank the team at Guernsey Finance for putting this event together, our headline sponsors, Kerry Olson and Osia, all our many supporter sponsors who you can see details on the screen, and our media partners, the BVCA and Funds Europe. And finally, a big thank you to all of you who tuned in. If you know anybody who'll be interested by what was discussed today, the webinar will be available on demand on our website shortly, so please feel free to share that link. Please also do complete our survey. It's really important for us to get your feedback. We hope you can tune in again tomorrow for our second session, moderated by James Bromley, at which we'll be hearing from leading market practitioners about their experiences in managing investors and how Guernsey's strengths have supported their needs in the current climate. But for now, it's goodbye from Guernsey and have a great afternoon. Goodbye.